Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is The Case for Church Membership. Many Christians emphasize the relationship with Christ, but don't seem so keen on developing the relationships with other Christians as part of his bride, that is the church. And in particular, it's not uncommon for believers to drift from church to church. We see this all the time. They refuse to become identified with the local church. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the case for church membership. Hopefully you'll be informed, encouraged to join a local church, and if necessary, as always, you might be offended. So Aaron, uh, start us out with a very fundamental, what is the church and what is the difference between the church universal and the local church? I know there's sometimes some some confusion surrounding that issue, and I think we'd do well to clarify that before we go any further. Right on. Yeah, this is a pretty fundamental question to, to introduce us to this discussion. So the word church in English comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and the word ekklesia is composed of two words, a preposition ek, which means out, and kaleo, called. So the literal etymological meaning of the word ekklesia is called out, but the etymology of a word does not necessarily determine its full-orbed meaning. When you're looking at the meaning of a word, you need to look at the context, and contextually, the word ecclesia is used outside of uh, Christian contexts. It was a word used in the Greek world, and it refers not just to people that are called out of something, but it refers to an assembly, a gathering, a community. In the New Testament, this entity, this organism, the church, the ecclesia, is also called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the household of faith the temple, the flock. These are all very organic, very earthy words to describe this organism. Now, it is an organism that has organizational aspects to it, and it manifests itself in culture, in institutions like the Church Institute, the gathered assembly in a particular address in a particular place. But the word church refers to both the universal church, and it can also refer to a specific local church. Now, upon salvation, every Christian, every born-again believer becomes a member of the universal church. We used to say the Holy Catholic Church with a small c. The word Catholic is generally thought of as referring to the Roman Catholic, capital C, church. But the word Catholic simply means universal, so it's not a bad word, even for Protestants but you become a member of the universal church. But then in the scriptures, there's numerous references to local churches. So on one hand, there's one universal church. Ephesians 5 talks of the church as a bride, not brides. There's one groom, there's one bride. Christ doesn't have multiple brides, plurally as one bride, which is the, the universal church through all of time, the people of God. And in the eschatological community, there will only be one manifestation of that bride in one heavenly eschatological community, the people of God through all of time. But 
In this age, this is really important for people to lock into. In this age, the church always manifests herself in and as local churches. So in Romans, Paul talks of all the churches of Christ greet you, or in Acts, all the churches of the Gentiles. So we're actually getting our future vision, our eschatological vision of the church mixed up with the present reality of the church, if a person thinks, well, I can be, I'm part of the universal church, so I don't need to be part of the local church. No, you do. You are part of the universal church, and the church will manifest itself as one global entity in the eschatological kingdom. But in the here and now, the, the visible church it manifests itself locally. There's no one visible universal church that meets in a particular place or that you could even really tangibly identify. If you want to think of how do I encounter the body of Christ? How do I physically, tangibly interact with fellowship, with break bread with, sit under the preaching of pray with? You have to be, you have to encounter a local assembly of believers. So every believer must be part of a local church, and this is evidence from, uh, evident from experience. Like I've already mentioned, we only see local churches. And again, even the universal church is only visible through local churches. Uh, we have the church of Philippi, the church of Ephesus, the church of Thessalonica. They're, even in the New Testament, they're all, the, ch the universal church manifests itself in local assemblies. Mm -hmm. And uh, fundamentally, a local church has just very basic elements to it. Uh, it has to have at least two elders. We know that because whenever elders were appointed to oversee and, and rule local churches, there was always it's always in the plural. So there needs to be at least two. And it'd be great if there's more, but there needs to be, you have to have two to be plural. So there needs to be at least two qualified elders to oversee a bona fide, dually organized, meaning properly organized local assembly of believers. And they need to dedicate themselves to teaching, to the apostle teaching, to prayer, to the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. So that's that's a basic, there's a universal church, but the universal church manifests itself necessarily in local assemblies. Mm -hmm. So tying this to the idea of church membership, um, suppose I just want to show up at the local church but I don't want to go through any classes or processes, signing anything, et cetera. Shouldn't it just be, you know, my profession of faith is enough to join me to that church? Okay, so that, that's a fair question. And a person might be thumbing through the Bible looking for that key verse that says, here's how local church membership works. This is the document that you sign, or this is the class, this is the curriculum to the class that you must take, and they don't find it, so they refuse it. So they say there's no, you look at the scriptures, there's no polity, there's no constitutional manual, so I don't need to join a local church as a quote-unquote member. I'm already a member of the universal church, so I don't need to join a local church. So this is a very common mindset, and I want to dissect that a little bit. And in order to do that, we need to consider several things. Number one, as I've already mentioned, to, to understand the nature of the church is to understand that it always manifests itself in local assemblies. So you can't be, 
it's it's a it's a strange idea to say, well, I'm a member of the universal church, which which is intangible, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not going to join the local church because I'm part. So basically, you're not part of anything. Is what, practically speaking, what you're saying. You may have a ontological connection to the universal church, but practically, in order to to um, meet elders, in order to have the sacraments administered in order to be under church discipline or participating in church discipline, you have to be connected in space and time to flesh and blood to mm-hmm. <laughs> to a local assembly. But primarily, uh, what I want to do is I want to just ask, this might take a little bit of a, uh, people might need to lean in a little bit intellectually here and just follow my thinking. So when people say, well, the Bible doesn't prescribe, there's no policy statement in the New Testament that specifically outlines the nature of local church membership, I want to ask this question in response. Is the purpose of the Bible to, A, prescribe church polity in any area of the church, think about that, or B, does church polity become binding based on the prescribed authority that God has granted to elders to oversee the church? In keeping, of course, with the principles of the Bible and the realities that a local congregation faces, and I'm going to go with B. Now, Said another way, I'm going to actually argue that it's unbiblical. It's actually unbiblical. It's contrary to how the New Testament presents itself for church for people to look for church polity in Scripture. Meaning, aside from the most broad in the most broad strokes, appoint elders in every town, mm-hmm. cel- you know, celebrate the Lord's Supper, these sorts of things. When, it talks, when I'm talking about church polity, so how, we, how, specifically, how do we handle our money? How do we collect our offerings? When do we meet? In what location should we meet? Should we meet in homes or church buildings that we co-own? Should we register as charities? Should we have youth groups? It's actually unbiblical to look for those church polity statements or directives in the Scripture because, because listen to this, the authority to determine such things is actually vested in qualified elders who must examine the word of God in light of their responsibilities to oversee, to guard the flock, to discipline the flock, to teach the flock. It's actually within the purview of their authority to determine these things. That's actually biblical. So it's unbiblical to look for a constitution in the New Testament. It's biblical to believe that God has granted the authority to qualified elders to determine those things, and as they determine those things, that actually is biblical. So we have to look at Scripture and acknowledge that there are many areas of life where God doesn't prescribe specific polity, and that actually doesn't give you an out. Mm-hmm. 
So let me let me use two illustrations from other areas of life that most people are going to agree with. Because sometimes when we go with the more obvious, the less obvious becomes clearer. So let's talk about marriage first of all. I think most of our listeners would agree, most Christians in general would agree that marriage is a sacred covenant. It's for life. It's not meant to be violated. God hates divorce. It's a husband and wife. It's supposed to be publicly affirmed. It's supposed to be known. It's not a secret covenant. Okay, all of that. Mm-hmm. But does the Bible actually tell us how you're supposed to solemnize that covenant? Hmm, you ever thought about that? So give me one passage in the Bible that says you have to exchange rings. You'll, you, you won't find it. Mm-hmm. Give me a passage in the Bible that says the dad has to walk the daughter down the aisle. You won't find it. Give me a passage in the Bible that says you have to have three or four guys standing up on either side of you. Now, how about this one? Give me a passage in the Bible that says you have to have a marriage license. How about this one? Leaning in a little more intently, making people feel a little more uncomfortable. It's common for people to say, don't break your marriage vows. Where in the Bible does it say you're supposed to take vows in order to solemnize a Christian marriage? Guess what? It's not there. So are these things unbiblical? No. We believe that the nature of a covenant, it's it's some sort of a public affirmation that a man and a woman are being joined together in a marital covenant for life. Malachi, the prophet Malachi calls it a covenant. Now, if in one community they say the way we do that is we tie your hands up, or we make you wear blue flip-flops, or uh, one person walks in from the left and one person walks from the right, or you make a statement and then you go into a tent and consummate it. There's various ways that different cultures can determine how to publicly affirm that covenant. What we all agree to is that it's a covenant, it needs to be publicly affirmed. But the Bible doesn't specify or it doesn't require vows, but it's not unbiblical to say to someone, dude, you broke your vows. Mm-hmm. You have a ring in your finger, that's important because these things, these are, the polities, the policies that we've put in place to determine and define the covenant. And once those have been agreed to, then the covenant has a binding nature to it. Or how about Christian parents who would agree with this statement? Parents have authority over their children prior to them leaving and cleaving and starting their own families. We would all agree with that. Parents have authority over their children it's in the great commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, the, you're to honor your father and mother. What if a child says, you know, mom and dad, I know you have authority over me, but the Bible doesn't actually say that you can enforce a curfew. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that I have to eat my peas. You're always telling me I have to eat my veggies, but you, it doesn't say that. Give me a verse where it says that I have to do my homework. Give me a verse where it gives you the authority to tell me that I have to cut the grass on Saturday mornings. You're like, oh, well, I, I, I guess I can't find the verse. So my authority is theoretical, I guess. You're supposed to honor me, but unless I can find a specific passage in the Bible that says, you know, you need to, be, you need to cut the grass when you're told or you need to eat your peas when your mom says finish your, your meal, you have no authority. Now, no, no Christian, every Christian parent would say that would be a nonsensical approach. Mm-hmm. They would say, look, the authority that is invested in a parent can be reasonably applied to any area that the parent thinks is important to, to execute their responsibility to raise up a child in the way of the Lord. It's also reasonable for a pastor to say, when we publicly affirm the covenant in this church, we bind hands, or we, we, we require a ring, or we require vows. And in the same way, it's reasonable for elders who are 
mandated by God to oversee the church, to say to a congregation, here, and they can vary from church to church, we'll talk about that, here are the ways and means that we affirm that you are a born-again believer, that you're a, you are a part of this local assembly as opposed to the one that exists around the corner down the street. And therefore, those that uh, are part of the church must submit to those determinations that elders have put uh, in place. Here's what the Bible actually says about leaders. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, do I only submit in areas where they have to show me book, chapter, and verse? No, this is actually an abuse of Scripture. Give me book, chapter, and verse, Pastor, that says I have to become a member. Give me book, chapter, and verse that says I need to show up to church on time. Give me book, chapter, and verse that says I can't bag off church three weeks out of four. Um, Yeah, here's the book, chapter, and verse. Hebrews 13, verse 16. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls, and it is they who will have to give an account. So some might say, well, how convenient. So you're telling me you, I have to obey you in everything? No, you don't have to obey elders in everything, but you must obey your elders when they make decisions on behalf of the congregation that relates to their task to protect the doctrine of the church, to administer the sacraments, to administer church discipline, to protect the church from wolves. And if a local eldership says, here's the process that as we exercise our authority as overseers, here's the process you must go through to affirm your commitment to Christ, to guard the doctrine of the church, to protect our children, to protect our finances, you then are required to submit to those things. Mm -hmm. As a point of biblical instruction. Hmm. So how does requiring local church membership demonstrate that elders are taking their role seriously and that membership therefore warrants obedience? Like, can you maybe flesh that out a little bit? Sure. So we can argue this from from two ways. Local church membership is actually, first of all, it's a necessary means of protecting the flock. And we need, we need to really think about this practically. Local church membership in this age is absolutely necessary to protect the flock, which is one of the requirements and in, in, in duties of uh, local church uh, elders. And a lack of membership is actually destructive to the flock. So we'll argue from the positive and the, and the negative. So think about this. Let's go back to the New Testament world. And I appreciate people who are um, realists. So a lot of people are kind of naive. They don't think about their place in history, the reality of the moment. In the New Testament world, as best as we can tell, when an apostle would go into a particular town, initially at least, they would plant one church. It might have been 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people. They'd meet in the synagogues where possible, in a public place. When they were driven out of the synagogues, they'd meet in homes. It's interesting, by the way, just as a sidebar, the ideal was not to meet in homes. They wanted to meet in the public. They only met in homes when they were driven out of the public. So this is a little sidebar. I always say to people, look, as much as possible, churches should meet in the public, like have an address, have a rented space or an owned space. Don't don't deliberately make a decision to meet 
in private where no one can see you. If you if you have to do it like they didn't they do in China because it's illegal, go for it. But as much as possible, do what the early church did and meet in a quote unquote synagogue in a public place, a place where people can see you, like be visible in a community. But that's a little sidebar. The New Testament, let's say they went into Ephesus, they'd plant a single church. And they were relatively small compared to many churches today. The church at the time, it was a fledgling, so they didn't own property. It wasn't even legal in, in a lot of those areas. They, they, they didn't have to develop layers of protection, constitutions. They didn't have to have budgets and uh, protective measures to protect kids from abuse. They're just, they're just doing church. People might think, oh, that, that's what I want to do. I just want to do church again, right? I just want to meet in my living room and do church because that's what the New Testament did. The New Testament church did. Well, newsflash, over the last 2,000 years, some things have happened, which we need to acknowledge. We may not like them, but we need to acknowledge them. How about the Great Schism? How about the Reformation? How about heresy and false teachers that have, over the last 2,000 years, risen in the church? This is a reality for us. We now have, in Ephesus, there was one church. Now there are false churches, pseudo-churches. It took a little bit of time for them to have to deal with that reality, but when they had to deal with it, well, then they had to call out false teachers. But in the beginning, there was just one church, but then when there was a false church that would arise or a false teacher, Gnosticism would invade the church, they had to necessarily deal with that. We don't know when the first time a child was molested in a Sunday school classroom or a child was molested by a clergyman that we don't we don't know when that happened but at some point the reality is because of living in a fallen world that happened and so that becomes a reality that church leaders need to consider and then of course depending on the the property that or the country you're in you may be you may find yourself in a country where you have freedom to worship or you don't have freedom to worship so then they have to consider okay where are we going to meet what time how are you going to enter the church how are you going to exit the church how do we protect ourselves you don't have to think about that day 1 but we have to think about that that now because we've had 2000 years of problems mm-hmm. to deal with we're also subject to laws people are uh, churches find themselves in various jurisdictions, and there's laws pertaining to how to register or how to conduct business or how to run bank accounts. Churches own facilities. False teachers have in- infiltrated flocks. So, newsflash, we're not in the first century. And a responsible leader has to consider the realities of their culture and context and the history that they've inherited. We didn't cause the the sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church, but we, we've inherited the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. We didn't cause the Great Schism. We didn't cause the Protestant Reformation. We didn't cause false teachers. We didn't cause anti-Trinitarian heretics. We didn't cause that. Mm-hmm. But if you're eldering a church right now, you have to consider these things. This is the, the history, the reality of the moment that you have inherited. And unfortunately, a lot of anti-membership critics want us to somehow just ignore those things, and that's irresponsible. So we have to consider these things, and we then have to organize and oversee our flocks. Again, if we're we're called to oversee our flocks and to protect our flocks, we have to consider these things. Mm -hmm. And church membership, in part, is, is is a response 
to the realities that we've inherited in 2023. And to deny those is frankly to be a fool. Mm-hmm. Now, suppose we we use this illustration. Let's let's suppose that um, you once lived or you once heard of a little village in the middle of Nowheresville that had literally never had a burglary. No one had ever burgled a home, ever. What would be the point then if no one had ever burgled a home for anyone to ever put a lock on their door or to lock their door? There'd be no point. It's, you can still go to little towns in, in Northern Ontario where people just leave their doors unlocked. I remember years ago when we were building a cottage up north, I had a guy come in and do some work on a septic system. And then later I had him deliver some, uh, some aggregate to my property and I needed to pay him. So I said, well, how do I get you the money? He's like, well, just go to my house and such and such a road. And I thought he was going to say, leave it in the mailbox. He's like, no, go in the side door. I won't be home. Walk down the hallway, past the bathroom. You can go into my office. It's at the end of the hallway. Just leave it on my desk. I'm like, really? It was the weirdest thing, Chris. So I go to this guy's house in this rural setting, and I'm literally walking around a complete stranger's house, and I, I literally just throw cash on his desk, and I leave. And that's normal. Well, if, if that's how you're raised because no one burgles homes, that's totally fine. But as soon as there's one burglary, guess what? Mm-hmm. You got to start thinking about putting locks on your doors. Mm-hmm. You got to think about putting the money in the mailbox or e-transferring it or whatever it might be. And we live in a culture where false teachers have infiltrated churches for centuries, where children have been molested, and therefore we need to take, we need to have protocols in place to make sure that we're keeping them as safe as we possibly can. We have the government breathing down our neck. We need to make sure that we properly account for our money. People have stolen and embezzled funds before and it becomes a public scandal. So you have to have good financial systems, good audits, these sorts of things. You might say, oh, that's that's not biblical. Then you're naive. Mm -hmm. I don't know what planet you're living on, but you're naive. So if we, which who among us would not say all these things are important? Is it important for a church to guard its doctrine? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's important. Is it important for a church to make sure that people that are serving in leadership are qualified? Oh, oh yeah, that's important. Is it important to make sure that we are managing our funds well? Yes or no? Well, yeah, that's important. Is it important for us to protect our children from pedophiles, from people with criminal records? Well, yeah, that's important. Well, then... What's the big hang-up with saying we have a little bit of a process in place that asks questions like, do you agree with our church doctrine? Mm -hmm. We have a process in place that says that analyzes and assesses your qualifications for leadership in the church. We have a process in place that we all agree to in terms of how we handle our finances. We have a process in place for how we protect our kids. Do you know what you call that? You call that church membership. Mm -hmm. And so we must, if, if we actually believe that doctrine, qualified leadership, finances, protecting kids, maintaining church unity, and all these other benefits are important, you must have some means of vetting people. And the fairest way to do that is to have an agreed-upon membership process. Now, at our church, we actually call it ministry partnership, so I don't care what you, what you call it, but we call it ministry partnership because— we want to emphasize through the actual language that you're partnering together in ministry. That's the objective mm-hmm. with um, the rest of the people. So we call our people MPs mm-hmm. or ministry partners. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the funny thing is that the the anti-membership people are also quick to put procedures in place to protect their own kids if they have them. They're not just going to let anybody come and babysit your kids. You can just let anybody that applies to a, a response to a Facebook marketplace ad or a Kijiji ad. Do you put a sign in your road? Hey, anybody want to come babysit my kids tonight? No, you're going to vet those people. Mm-hmm. Well, why would we not? Why would the Church of Jesus Christ not vet those that have access to its children? Mm-hmm. Think about think of think of how the, the double standard that's there. Um, we the anti-membership crowd protects their their own property. You know, they they make sure they handle their finances properly and file whatever paperwork needs to be filed with the government. And if there's locks that need to be on the door, put locks in the door. If cameras need to be put up, but oh, the church shouldn't do any of that. We're just supposed to live by faith and allow it to be a free for all. Anybody can come in. You know, anybody can just minister to your people, counsel people, hold events whenever they want, invite people to their home, preach whatever they want, sing whatever they want, collect offerings, send missionaries. Like what planet are people living on? They're the the standards, the the natural standards that we 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 adopt as responsible parents in the realm of parenting or citizens in the realm of filing our taxes. It's not unreasonable at all. In fact, it's very reasonable, and we should all be eager to support thoughtful elders that are saying we want to protect our flock. We are we are responsible as much as we can to protect our flock, and there's basic requirements in place to make sure that everyone's had the right conversations and we're all on the same page and we're pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, and I think you almost answered my question that I had, um, because I'm thinking about whose responsibility is this? Is it it just the elder's responsibility? Is it everybody's responsibility? And, And maybe tied to that, is there one way to recognize members or what's what's your thoughts on that? So the process of what we're calling membership, I'm just using a term that most people use, but again, if you want to call it ministry partnership or select some other term that communicates your objectives to your people, you know, have at it. So the specific process that a church adopts doesn't matter that much to me and there can be variations of that. For some, it might be a couple classes, it might be some interviews, it might be um, whatever, a handshake, a fist bump, wearing a green shirt, wearing pink sandals. <laughs> some way, the leadership needs to have a vest, take a vested interest in developing a process, and the ultimate goal is to affirm, are these people actually saved? What are their giftedness? Gift. What's their giftedness? What's their? What are their qualifications? Are they safe people to protect our our flock? And again, that's going to vary from culture to culture, because some you may determine that you're in an area where you have to have more procedures in place because of the size of your church or some scandals that have taken place to protect your kids than in than in a rural village. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to thoughtfully determine that as elders, but because you are ultimately responsible to give an account, yeah, the buck stops with you. You're the ones that oversee the church. Now, can you seek congregational input on that? Yeah, have at it. But you can't have people coming saying, well, you know, I want to identify with this local church, but I just want to be, I just want to be affirmed based upon my big smile. And another person comes and says, well, 
you already know me, so why are we having this conversation? And another person comes and says, well, I just want to bring a letter of transfer from my previous church and on and on and on. Well, if you if you want to, if, if your church is, is of a size where you can let everyone determine their own pathway in, have fun with that. But I think the fairest and most sensible way is to say, look, everybody goes through the same process. Whatever that process is, depending on your culture and your time period, you may need to add steps or or uh, remove steps that aren't necessary anymore, but you have to determine that as an eldership. Now, some will balk at the idea of being affirmed or vetted by others, and this is where this weird dualism often comes into Christians, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, I have a different standard for the way I interact with the government, the way I manage my own family, the way I interact with my employers or employee, and then the church is a completely different place. I don't, I don't have a problem taking a driver's test to get my driver's license, I don't have a problem showing a passport to cross an international border. I don't have a problem with putting locks on my door to protect my household or vetting babysitters before they babysit my kids. But in the church, it's a free-for-all. Mm. I'm, I'm a Christian. That's all that matters. I should be able to come and go, do what I want. I don't need to be affirmed by anyone. I'm just affirmed by the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, well, Mr. or Mrs. Spiritual, um, let me just say this to you. Being approved and affirmed by the Holy Spirit is necessary for ministry. So when you read the book of Acts and Paul and Barnabas are going out, they're affirmed by the Holy Spirit. But guess what? Surprise, surprise. It's also necessary to be affirmed and approved by God's people. When we were kids, we were part of a a church called the Gospel Hall. And in the Gospel Halls, they had a, a policy in place um, where if you went from one assembly to another assembly on a Sunday morning, let's say you're traveling, you had to carry a letter of commendation. Now, where I think the Gospel Hall erred is they saw that as a biblical requirement because in the scriptures it does talk about letters of commendation. And I would say, no, it's not a biblical necessity to have a letter of commendation to visit another church, but the principle there is actually they're on to something. Uh in that the, the form isn't so much important, but the principle is. In, in the New Testament, there's multiple examples of where Christians were affirmed or commended by others, not just by the Holy Spirit, but flesh and blood affirming and commending the trustworthiness, the qualifications of another to engage in some sort of a ministry service. So Titus, for example, was commended to handle church funds for the poor in 2 Corinthians 8. He was selected and he was commended. They, 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 they name him. We can trust this guy. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, it talks about believers were accredited by letter to carry the gift to Jerusalem. So when church funds were collected to take to the poor in Jerusalem, they actually carried letters proving that they were in good standing with the church that sent them. So they were accredited. They didn't show up and say, oh, the Holy Spirit sent me. You can trust me. Look, I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Mm-hmm. Do you not think I love Jesus? Do you not trust me? They didn't play these mind games. They produced evidence that they were commended by the, the believers that were sending the money. Uh, local churches approved people to handle church money. Well, why would we not do the same? Why, would, why do we have such a big problem with saying, look, before you handle church funds, we want to make sure you're commended. We want to make sure you're qualified. We want to make sure you're approved. We want to make sure you're trustworthy. We want to make sure you're above reproach. In fact, even with eldership, one of the qualifications of eldership is to be above reproach. 
That's not determined by the Holy Spirit. That's determined by the community of faith that watches you. Chris, do you live a life that's above reproach? Well, let's just ask the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. No, no. You look around. You say, is, does this guy have any dirt that will hinder him in ministry? Um, are you trustworthy? Paul wrote a letter to approve the ministry of Apollos. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were commended by the Jerusalem Council to go do ministry to the Gentiles. Church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 requires, by definition, an acknowledgement of who is in in order to throw them out. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of church pilgrims that drift from church to church. You know, young people, they're at whatever youth group the hot girls are at or the hot guys are at or people that bounce from church to church, depending on who's got the best Christmas program. Very much of a consumer mindset. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then they wonder, by the way, there's a lot of people out there, just as a sidebar, always on pastors, all these pastors, they're performing, there's there's pastors that are out there, they, they, they act like employees. Well, you're treating them like that. Mm -hmm. You're actually facilitating that kind of behavior. When you become a spectator Christian who refuses to join the church, you actually are creating pastors that treat the church like a business. People need to rem be reminded Churches don't come from pastors. Pastors come from within congregations. And if you create, if you act like a spectator Christian, you will create showman pastors. So if you want better pastors, act better. That's, that would be a, a, a message I would just deliver to everyone. So here's the thing. The anti-membership crowd, again, they, it's amazing when you watch them in action. They have they don't balk at the idea that you have to go to a particular office and get a health card in order to have access to public health care, let's say, in Ontario. They don't go and say, well, you know what? I know the cards are green, but I don't like green. I want a blue card. Or I, I, I'm not into plastic. I, I want paper, like good old-fashioned paper. No, you go, and here's your options. Mm -hmm. You apply for the green health card, or you don't get access to health care. Oh, okay, so we'll apply for it. Uh, driver's licenses. There aren't eight ways that you can get your driver's license, five ways you can get a passport. You follow rule A, B, C, and D. You don't get to dictate the terms because the civil government has a vested interest in these things, mm -hmm. and you submit to them in, 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 in those areas. If you want access, you submit to them. They, uh, a lot of the anti-membership crowd also, again, they protect their own financial interests. They protect their own property, they protect their children from theft or abuse, but God forbid if the church actually requires you to answer a few questions before you can work with our kids. Mm -hmm. That's not spiritual. You know, God forbid that you actually have a criminal record check on hand before you get keys to a $5 million building or access to 100 kids on a Sunday morning. That's not very spiritual. The church should just be a free-for-all. We're just one extended family. It's nonsense. Here's what it all boils down to, Chris. There's a there's the anti-membership crowd often willing they willingly submit to civil authorities because there's penalties attached. But they don't submit to church authorities because they know that all we have is words. Mm -hmm. So they just don't do it. And they want to maintain their radical autonomy. And I would just say to elders, council members that are listening to this podcast, hold the line. Mm -hmm. Don't permit division. Don't permit those that are radical autonomists to infiltrate, sow seeds of discord, try to push you into the corner, get, make 
accuse you of wrongdoing because you're just simply trying to guard your flock. You don't apologize for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and God will bless you for that because we'll, as long as everything we do is for the purpose of protecting God's flock and bringing honor and glory to God, we, we sleep well at night. Mm-hmm. Just as you mentioned that, I think one of the things coming to mind is that sometimes um, church leaders can undermine the value of membership or ministry partnership by, you know, just a desperation for volunteers or uh, not even understanding maybe they inherited the process of membership from the church and they just don't think about these things. So I think that's really helpful to remind us what it exists for as a yeah. protective mechanism. Yeah, never uh, to, to, to pastors, to pastors and church leaders, there's this interesting dynamic or this tension you have to live in in ministry, which people who aren't in leadership, they don't always understand the, the burden of responsibility and the, the, the accountability that's attached to that. But like on one hand, you want to be gracious, you want to be loving, um, you want to th- dream and think about how people can be developed in ministry. Like I spend a lot of time almost dreaming on behalf of people thinking, man, that guy could be really good at, or she could become really effective in. And I I try to see the best in people. Now, people don't, most people in the church don't really know me that well. They see me as a preacher. They've never really taken time to get to know Aaron Rock. They just, they think they know me, but they don't actually. And so they don't always understand my motives or the reasons why I do what I do. And that's fine because there's lots and lots of people in the church. We can't know everybody well. But those that know me well, I mean, you've said this too, um, would know that I I have a, a very optimistic view of people. That's my default. Like I, I want people to actually succeed and grow. And I'm sometimes hard on people because I'm not trying to be mean. I want them to grow. I want to push them. I want to push them forward. Those that may not know me well might think, well, he's he's dogmatic or he's being, you know, he's being too insistent or he's being too demanding. That actually I'm I'm not by nature that person, but I I want to guard the flock and I want to push people forward in ministry to be all that they can be in Christ. I I'm sort of hard on myself in that area and I'm hard on other people in that area because the time is short. And I, and I, most people don't struggle with doing too much for Christ. They struggle with doing too little, right? Yes. Well, now, if you meet people that do too much for Christ and they're burning the candle at both ends, you need to have that conversation. But that's generally not, not the problem. So you, you love people and you think well of people, but at the same time, you have to be hard-nosed in terms of your expectations. And when you have people that are naturally submissive, they end up being the best leaders. It's like, if you can submit to authority, we're going to make you a leader in all likelihood if you have the, the gifts. And you 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 push people forward. Um, but the people that get most offended by, by uh, biblical eldership that insists on boundaries are, are those that generally aren't actually committed anyway. I remember years ago, tongue-in-cheek uh, doing, I got this idea from someone else, but I did something called Purge Sunday. Mm-hmm. Oh my word! The only people that were offended by it were those that are were flaky in their attendance or were irregular. And I basically got up and I said, "Look, our 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 building at the time is kind of full, 
And if you've been coming to church for a lengthy period of time, I'm not talking about new people, you've been coming to a church for a lengthy period of time and you're just sitting in the pew and you're not serving and you're not giving, make this your last Sunday. But if you, and, and it was kind of like reverse psychology, um, but if you actually want to be part of the family of God, the body of Christ, you want to serve, you want to actually do better, we'll see you next Sunday. Mm-hmm. Well, the next Sunday, the attendance went up, as I recall, because people appreciate being challenged, but there was a few folks in the broader community, oh, that Aaron Rock, he's trying to throw people out of his church, he's not gracious, he's not loving. <laughs> it's like, you are the people that show up once or twice a month that never serve, that jump from church to church to church. You know what that's called? It's called conviction. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when you see people that are that refuse to be part of a church and it's been going on for decades or years or whatever it might be, you have to call their bluff. And they can yell and holler and scream and gossip and call you names and leverage innuendo and on and on and on. Just hold the line, mm-hmm. okay? Hold the line. It's for their own benefit. It's for the benefit of the body of Christ. If someone wants to sit home and watch Zoom church, have at it, but I don't think you're going to grow. If you want to jump from church to church to church because someone else has you know, lighter requirements of you, have at it. I'm just not interested in leading a church like that. Mm-hmm. So it is important for leaders to hold the line and not buckle because people leave. I'm totally comfortable with people leaving. You know, I've had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people come to this church in over 20 years and say, this is my home, who've left. That's very normal. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them leave for legitimate reasons. They move or you know they go home to be with the Lord uh, <laughs> yeah. or whatever it might be. But many people, they just, um, they just move on because they don't, they don't really want to grow any further with you. Some of them go into ministry, which is good in another church. Yep. But it kind of makes you sad, and the, and because I do love people probably more than they are aware, every time someone leaves, they admittedly do take a little bit of my heart with them, but the Lord just expands my heart for others, and you know, I, have, I feel um, I need to love the people that are in front of me now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mourn the, the loss of those that are no longer here, but that's life. You're not going to pastor the same people your whole life and all likelihood. Very few people yep. will you pastor for your entire life, and that's fine. Yeah. Now, fortunately, most people do become willing members or ministry partners, and you. I know you've already addressed the authority issue, but why else do you think people resist membership or ministry partnership? Well, there's there's five things that I think are factors in in general. Uh, you know, in any given populace, you're going to have people that are hyper independent. Now, I do I do appreciate independent thinkers. I do appreciate people with entrepreneurial gifts. I do appreciate people that can, you know, kind of blaze their own trail that are pioneers. I think I have a little bit of that in myself. But in general, some people are far too independently minded. They're the way they process life. It's all very much based upon categories of independent independence. And so it's harder for them to submit to authority. So for example, it doesn't mean you're uh, you know, destined to be an anti-membership person if you fall into these categories, but in general, you have to be more careful, for example, if you have entrepreneurial gifts. So I've noticed over the years that people that are business owners usually take longer to join churches and many of them never join churches. 
And they may justify it theologically, or they may try to identify with a, a, a denomination that doesn't really value any sort of formal process. But really, it's just their own hyper-independence. So sometimes when I meet business owners, I'll sort of ask. I remember a while ago saying, like, are you are you one of those guys who will just never join the church? What? What do you mean? Well, I'm asking because I noticed that a lot of independent business owners, they just never join. And they may argue along theological grounds they don't believe in church membership, but really it's just because they don't want to submit to authority. In fact, very interesting very interesting sort of sociological observation that someone shared with me years ago. I was talking to uh, a friend at the time who was part of a sort of a denomination that um, doesn't doesn't really have any sort of formal membership and doesn't have any sort of eldership, that it's just the men of the church all convene together and uh, deliberate over all the affairs of the church and make decisions. And, and And he made an interesting observation. He said, to the effect is it's not it's not actually because that's their theological bent. It's because ninety nine percent of them are small business owners and they just don't like to be under pastoral leadership. And I thought that's interesting. Hmm. <clears throat> so it, it could be that certain denominations or groups actually attract people that are just hyper individualistic. And so we need to assess like is my is my opposition to um, membership. An actual theological issue, or is it just because I'm I'm very independent. So I would say be be especially careful of hyper independence if you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're a good one. Um, if you're libertarian minded, a lot of libertarians don't see they don't believe in sphere sovereignty, so they don't really see the need for submission in any area, which is pretty problematic biblically. Mm-hmm. Um, another group that sometimes uh, struggles with um, church membership are people that marry late or are um, lifelong singles because they don't, they're not in the, it's easier to understand submission if you're married. Because even in marriage, you're always considering the other. Even if you're the the husband, you know, the wife is to submit to her husband, but there's a mutual submission that we ex- exercise towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to take the other into consideration. We have to think, okay, if I do A, how's that going to affect her? Or if I do B, how's that going to affect him? If you're not used to that in your family structure, it can be hard to put those principles into practice in your home. Single people, university students that have kind of come out from under mom and dad's umbrella and they're, you know, they're in a particular town and they just want to jump from church to church to church for four years, often it's difficult to say to them, look, even when you're in university or college, it's important for you to identify with a local assembly of believers. So there's a sociological reason is what I want to get to, in that some people are too independently minded. Okay, second, um, frankly, some people have too many options. You may live in a town where there's 100 churches or 50 churches. I've ministered in Windsor, Essex since uh, 1996, so quite a long time. And I know people who've attended six or more churches in that time. You know, they're five years here, they're three years here, they're two years here, they're eight years here. They just, they're just, they're church hoppers and pew shoppers. Now, interestingly, many of those people, if I meet them in public, I have a good relationship with them. I've known of them. Maybe they were in and out of our church, or they're in and out of another church I was in, or whatever. 
I have a good relationship with them, and I, I often get the vibe they kind of like what we're about, they appreciate what we're about, but they won't come here mm-hmm. because they don't believe in sphere sovereignty. They don't actually want to be under strong authority. And I think that's to their own detriment. I love them, but I think they're making errors. And if they have children, they're also communicating a non-committal uh, notion of church to their kids. People that generally jump from church to church to church don't produce children that are more committed to the church than they are. The next generation is usually less committed, and then less committed, and then they just be, they're just non-Christian. The third reason is many people are naive. They just don't have any They've never thought about how churches operate. So there's there's a certain percentage that don't become members because like, well, I just never really thought about it. I just come, I enjoy the preaching, I enjoy the music, I enjoy the fellowship. What's the point? They don't think about, for example, guarding a flock from wolves. How does a church actually guard a flock from wolves? Do we do do we do some sort of uh we have some sort of a special scanner when people come in? No. You have to have conversations and Membership classes and processes, interviews and whatever you want to put in your process, are ways of um, communicating your expectations and also asking questions of people. It guards the church from wolves. It'd be kind of like, it'd be kind of like, let's say you're an employee of a large corporation and they say, okay, you start at nine, so we want you here at nine and you end at five. And you think, okay, what's what's the job requirements? Okay, you need to put 1,000 widgets on 1,000 gidgets, and you work from nine to five. And then you think to yourself, well, I'd be just as good putting 1,000 widgets on 1,000 gidgets if I showed up at 11 o'clock and left at four. Okay, well, if that's true, you would need to have a conversation with your employer and say, if your expectations are to put 1,000 widgets on 1,000 gidgets, is it okay if I just show up whenever I want and leave whenever I want as a, as if I if I can get the job done? And one employer might say, yeah, that's fine. But another employer might say, that doesn't work for us because we have limited parking, we have multiple um, staff here, we have to have X number of people on, in the, on the factory floor from this time to this time, and then we have to clear out the lot so that people can come in from this time to this time. In other words, there might be some practical consideration that you're not thinking about. Mm-hmm that the employer is aware of that makes it impossible for you to pick your own hours. And in another context, it'd be totally fine for you to pick your own hours. So you would then need to submit to your leaders because they see things that you don't see. And elders and pastors see things that a lot of people in the proverbial pew don't see. They see the wolves. Like I know about the guy that came to our church and was anti-Trinitarian and starting to to divide our church. Mm I can think of the people that have come and tried to preach a half gospel to others or tried to uh, undermine our view of marriage or whatever it might be. And we don't announce these things every Sunday, but I can tell you this, as a pastor who's been pastoring for 30 years, I could tell you weeks worth of stories of people that have tried to bring destruction upon the body of Christ that you've never heard of and you never heard of and you're completely oblivious to. Mm-hmm. You may say, well, things seem to be fine. People drift in and why, why, why can't this person just freewheel it? Why can't they just serve in the church without becoming a member? Why, why do we have to have all this structure? Why do we have to have you know, a list of who's who in the zoo? Like, why, why is this all necessary? Because you're not a pastor mm-hmm. and you don't see the things that we see during the week. Mm-hmm. And you don't bear the weight of responsibility. You haven't had the sleepless nights when people have tried to destroy 
your flock. So there can be just a certain naivety to uh, being unaware of what happens. Fourth, Chris, it's easier to live common law than in a committed relationship. This is true in marriage. People love common law relationships. I get all the benefits, and I don't have to actually say I do. And it's the same in the church. Why would I, why would I say I do? Why would I sign something or whatever your process is? Um, verbally declare in front of the congregation your commitments. Why would I do that when I can live common law with the church? And you know what? It's very sad, but there's so many people that live common law with the church. They reap all the benefits. They're in the worship services. They're at youth groups. They're sending their kids to kids camp. They're, they're there, but they have no responsibility. They can come and they go when they want. They have no ultimate responsibility. And it, it's, it's like, well, I'm here. God says I'm supposed to meet, so I'm here but they will not submit. And at the heart of it, it's because they will not say, I do. They will not commit themselves. They can cloak their excuses however they want, but they will not say, I do. Mm-hmm. And then the final reason, this is actually rare, but um, I have heard on occasion people resisting church membership because they're concerned of what their family will think. Oh, man, my family are Catholics, or my family are Baptists, or whatever, and they're reformed or they, you know, whatever it might be. And they're okay with me attending here, but if I take out formal membership, mm-hmm. it's really going to cause family dynamic. Mm-hmm. So that, that that would be a rare instance, but I have heard of that on occasion. Yeah. Turning the tables, can you think of any legitimate reasons why people may avoid and rightly avoid mem- membership? Yeah, two reasons. You're dead or you're not saved. <laughs> okay. You know, other than that, there's there's literally no downside to it unless you're dead or you're not saved, there's literally no downside to avoiding church membership. You're not protecting yourself from anything. You're not guarding any biblical principle. There's no, there's nothing productive about that, zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that join churches have more freedom and liberty to serve. You get to discover your giftedness. People will tell you where you're gifted, where you're not gifted. You'll be disciplined where you need to be. There's literally no downsides to it. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So then final question would be, practically, how can churches improve their membership process? Well, don't make any of the steps towards church membership a waste of people's time. Make sure they're all deliberate. So if you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish in a short class, teach a short class. If you need a longer class, and there's a legitimate reasons for that, do it. If you need three steps, put three steps in. If you, only, if you can do it in one step, that's up to the local eldership. I'm not going to dictate and determine that. But good processes save time and they motivate people. I think having standardized processes is important to av- to avoid the perception of favoritism. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say, well, you know, my brother, my cousin's part of the church. I know them really well, so you don't have to attend the class, bro. Yep. I'll say, you know, go through it because I don't want to be guilty of nepotism. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's probably some things you're going to learn or hear that maybe we haven't covered. So having good standardized processes instead of allowing everyone to pick their own process is, is, is wise. So everybody goes through the same process. It also, w- one of the major benefits, I was talking, I mentioned this in staff meeting to our children's ministry director. So for example, let's, let's say one of our children's ministry directors needs to find six or 60, whatever the number is, new Sunday school teachers and helpers every year, or kids ministry workers, or you know whatever area of ministry you have that you need to find people for. It saves them an absolute ton load of time 
if they already have a list of people that have been through our membership processes, our ministry partnership process. So we've already asked questions about doctrine and discipline and the direction of the church. They know who the leaders are. They've made certain commitments, financial commitments, time commitments to the church. It saves them all kinds of time. So now they can ask specific questions about their availability for that specific area of ministry or their specific giftedness or their what questions they have to ask about that specific area of service. But can you imagine if every single time you wanted to appoint someone to any area, we have hundreds upon hundreds of people in our church serving, that you had to start with ground zero. Are you saved? Mm-hmm. Give me your testimony. Have you been baptized? Uh, what's your view on the Trinity? What's your view on Jesus Christ? What's your view on the Holy Spirit? What's your view on the end times? What's your view on our denominational or ministerial distinctives? How long have you been here? On What's your family life like? Like this would be nauseatingly exhausting. So in a sense, a good church membership process covers all those basic bases. And then you can, when you're looking to plug people into a specific area of service, you can just ask the specific questions pertaining to that. It's also important for people to realize that organization in the church is really important. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna step out of the limb and say this. I've seen more churches close and fail because of a lack of organization than I have because of false teaching. Many more. Many more. They don't have a plan for facilities, they don't have a plan for financial management, they don't have a plan for um elder development, mm-hmm. they don't have a plan for family ministry, whatever it might be. They don't have a plan. It's just a free-for-all. It's everyone comes and we just sort of love each other and we listen to the word preached and we sing a few songs and we leave and we just hope that everyone comes back next week and we don't follow up with people and we don't actually think about the, the temperature in the room or the lighting or the sound gear. It's just a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. And over time, they peter out and they die. And a lot, unfortunately, I've seen some very good men who are good preachers and love people their churches fold and die because they're simply not organized. Mm-hmm. They don't have a plan. They don't have any processes in place. And the Bible's not anti-organization. Moses was confronted by his father-in-law for not having lieutenants. So he appointed leaders of hundreds and tens and whatnot. In Acts 6, they had a problem. There was too many people to feed. So they had to appoint some servants to oversee the the food distribution program. They had to get organized. They didn't have to do that day one, but once people started flooding in, uh uh-oh, we need to get organized. We need to have actual leadership in place. We need to have people actually overseeing this. Even something as simple as having a ministry schedule. So you're in a church, there's a limited number of days and evenings, and do you just let everybody just do whatever they want? Oh, we're having a... We're having a men's breakfast. Oh, that's funny. We're having a men's breakfast too that day. Oh, we're having a women's ministry breakfast that day. Oh, the youth are meeting that day. Oh, well, I guess we'll all just show up and eat out of the same trough. Or I guess the first people in, you know, get to use the equipment. Everyone else has to stand out in the cold. Like something as simple as, talk about divisive and anti-productive. Something as simple as saying, hey, we're all together here, just like in my family, right? Susie will say, hey, uh, we've been invited to such and such as home on this date. Are we available? We have to talk about it. Look at the schedule, yes or no, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The kids are going to come over on Saturday for dinner. Who's available? We have to talk about that. Same in the church. Having an agreed-upon ministry philosophy, schedule, people in place, 
it it actually guards against all sorts of um, um, problems. So if people are interested in what we do, uh, very simply, we, we we try to pick language that's helpful. So ministry partnership over membership that works for us. We have some a couple of classes. One's a quick intro. It's we call it an essentials class. It's like a half hour overview. It's intended to give people like a bird's eye view to see if they're interested in going deeper. We do that monthly. And then we have a two hour Essentials 2 class, which takes place quarterly. Um, I teach that. I think you often teach, maybe with a couple other guys, Essentials 1. Yeah. Uh, we used to have a much quicker process, but we found if you don't spend enough time helping people to think through the issues, more people leave. Because mm -hmm. they don't think about what they're getting themselves into. Yep. Exactly. So then we have a uh, a covenant that people fill out that just affirms on paper. Um, yeah, I believe this. I'm I, I I affirm the direction of the church. I it's my way of saying, hey, I, I want to join. We have a couple of our people sit down for an interview, and it's a it's a two way interview, and then they're affirmed by the eldership. Mm -hmm. So that's our um, you know ministerial membership process. So you don't want the bar to be so high that it's cumbersome, but you don't want it to be so low that, you know, people are joining and then later, oh, I didn't know you believed that. Oh, I didn't know that was an expectation. So there needs to be a, some reasonable deliberation that takes place. Mm -hmm. um, one one minor point I thought of too, uh, what about people that are arguing against, quote, signing something, right? Who see the church as one big universal entity, but don't see the point of declaring their commitment to one local church? Yeah, so there's, not, there's nothing sacrosanct about signing a document. But if the elders of a church say, you know, we want paper records for whatever reason, maybe there's a there's legal reasons for that, or, you know, you have insurance, and the insurance company's like, you know, you need to kind of have a list of who's actually members if they're working with minors, then that's up to that congregation to determine. And signing is very concrete. I don't see any downsides to signing. But again, I would just put, maybe offer two illustrations. Again, the same people that would maybe say, oh, I don't want to sign anything. Okay, but you went to the license bureau and you signed for your driver's license. Why? You're not biblically required to sign, to drive, because you would you acknowledge the authority of the civil government or by necessity you do it because you want the benefits mm -hmm. of having a driver's license. And so I'm not so much concerned about the the mode or the methods that a particular congregation determines um, for membership, but you need to determine that in light of your circumstances. And when people resist on a technicality, like I don't like signing, it's, it's I hate to say this, but it's generally because of some sort of naivety to the legal and public responsibilities that elders have to guard their people. Or it's just another excuse. It's just another diversion tactic. Well, I'll become a member, but I want to sign something. Or I'll become a member, but I only attend one class. Or, you know, it's always setting the, it's always dictating and determining the conditions. It's asserting their authority, their independence. Um, or it's just being inconsistent. The second illustration I'll give is let's let's suppose you're a, we'll use a, an illustration from agriculture that's pretty apropos for church life. Let's suppose you're a sheep farmer. And you have 30 sheep, and you live on a country property. And lo and behold, guess who lives next to you? Another sheep farmer. 
and they have 30 or 40 sheep. Do you just let your sheep freely intermingle with the sheep next door? No, you put a fence up. Or you would mark them in some way because your stewardship is those 30 sheep, not 60 sheep. You don't let your neighbor just take your sheep and pasture your sheep. You determine by agreement, these are my sheep, these are your sheep. And there needs we're not saying, well, your sheep are better than my sheep, or my sheep are better than your sheep, or we can never trade sheep, or my sheep can never visit your sheep, or your sheep can never visit my sheep, or I may not buy one of your sheep, or whatever it might be. Or I'm a better sheep keeper than you are, but that's your stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so you need to somehow delineate, define your stewardship. So in our church, our elders acknowledge that we have a stewardship, and I'm not everyone's pastor in Canada. I'm the pastor, along with our other pastors, of a limited number of people that have willfully subjected themselves to our pastoral leadership. We are under shepherds, of course. Uniquely, we are part of the flock and overseeing the flock. That's one of the interesting dynamics of Christianity. We're sheep too, mm -hmm. but we're also under shepherds. And so there has to be a way of us determining whose sheep have actually been entrusted to our stewardship. And I'm not responsible for Pastor Bob or Pastor Bill or whatever other pastors might be in town. I'm not responsible for their sheep. I don't have authority over them to shepherd them. But I do have limited authority over the sheep that God has called me to shepherd. Mm -hmm. And I take responsibility for that. And so it's perfectly within the authority of elders to say, uh, yeah, we're gonna have some fences here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're not gonna let some other pastor pastor our sheep. Mm -hmm. We're responsible for them. So now obviously people can leave the sheepfold and go to the next sheepfold. Mm -hmm. That's their prerogative. You know, there is a gate. But when you're in the sheepfold, guess what? We're actually, surprise, surprise, we're actually going to pastor you. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, we're not gonna apologize for that. Mm -hmm. And we're not gonna allow our neighbor to come over into our sheepfold and uh, take our sheep from us um, and then give them back and then take them from us. I don't right. know what he's feeding yeah. them. Yeah. I don't know what kind of food he's feeding them. I don't know how he's treating them. Uh, we're responsible to, to feed them. We're responsible to tend to their injuries. Mm -hmm. uh, we're responsible to make sure they're reproducing, using a f spiritual analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so there's nothing unreasonable or abnormal about building a little fence mm -hmm. around your sheepfold and saying, "Yeah, this, this is, these are the people that are part of the flock called Harvest Bible Church," you know, or in you can add your church name mm -hmm. there. And as long as they're in our fold, we're going to shepherd them to the best of our ability. And we're not going to allow other people to take them away and feed them another diet or discipline them in a way that we don't discipline them or not discipline them in a way. That's that's mm -hmm. That just creates rebellious sheep mm -hmm. and uh, all sorts of potential problems for compromise. Yeah. Fair enough. Good stuff. Well, this has given people, I'm certain there are listeners, a ton to think about in terms of membership. So thank you to our listeners for tuning in and hopefully you've been blessed and I would really appreciate it. I know Aaron would appreciate it as well if you take this episode and share it onto uh, the various social media platforms or send it via email or 
download a copy and put it on a thumb drive and give it to somebody. However you get it out. Um, just as a reminder where you can find this podcast, you can find it on the pursuitofglory.org website, which is a resourcing site of Pastor Aaron's, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and their companion app. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock. <laughs>